0: Taking stock
1: with Mandy Johnston.
0: Thanks to Skillness Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.
2: This is News Talk.
1: You're hey, welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and on today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Coming up on today's show, pennies from heaven, the halo effect that a penny store can bring with it. The IMF warned this week that 2023 will feel like a recession as it cuts global growth forecasts for the fourth time this year. Economist Jim Power joins us to decipher what it all means for us here in Ireland. The way we shop and buy our clothes has changed radically in recent years. What can we do to make our choices more sustainable? Policy Director at Fashion Revolution, Maeve Galvin, will join us to give us some tips. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, the halo effect of a penny store is a very interesting thing. The retailer opened its doors here in Ireland in 1969 in Dublin, but Penny's, or Primark as it's known globally, employs over 70,000 people all over the world. It's got 400 stores across 14 countries. This year, Penny's opened a new store in Ireland, in Tala and also pledged 700 new Irish jobs as part of its 250 million investment. Linda Daly, who's business reporter for The Sunday Times, has been writing about the phenomena of the halo effect that the shop opening can have on an area or on a retail space. And she joins me now. Linda, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Now, Linda, just first off, uh, something I've always been curious about, why is it called Penny's here on Primark everywhere else?
2: Um, I believe that that was when Penny's was opened first in 1969 in Ireland. But when it was expanding to the UK, there was a patent clash um, with JC Penny, the American store. So they had to change it. So While they were still able to call it Pennies in Ireland, they needed to change the name and that's where they got Primark.
1: So we kept the original name. I was just looking at some of the statistics. So it's got 17 million square feet of space all across the world in those 400 stores I mentioned earlier. That's just for anyone who's interested, is the same as 210 soccer pitches. What's their footprint like here in Ireland, Linda? How many people do they uh, employ and what's their business model uh, like?
2: Um, I'm not sure how many people they employ, but they have 37 stores. Um, you know, so they're expanding. They announced uh, last year, I think it was, that they were going to expand and invest the €200 million Euro in those stores. Um, they have they, the, the latest one they opened, obviously, was in Tala. Um, but they're also expanding uh, their, their stock. So they have kind of a Carlo store that they're expanding and Dundrum as well. They're expanding um and it's just the the usual pennies. It's a mix of homeware. They're increasing their homewares, clothes, um, fashion and cosmetics. They're quite big.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the, the new store opening in Tala. And just around that, you've been writing about what's known in industry circles as the Primark effect. What does that mean?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I got the idea for the article that we did last Sunday because I was in Tala. Um, and I just noticed, like, it's just really changed the the whole kind of vibe of the square. And um, like it's, it's been so busy. So um, I I decided to look to have a look and see, you know, was it just my imagination? <laughs> um I rang up the square and um, Jack Martin, who's their retail director there, he was saying that um, the footfall has gone up by 40%. Um, and then when I dug into it a little bit, um, there's a UK company called Springboard, and they actually did research for the Financial Times in 2020. And they found that it's not just kind of, you know, it's three weeks since the Talis store opened. They found that actually, you know, while it, while it does, you know, jump by huge amounts, but that footfall increase continues. And um, so, like, even a year after, footfall and shopping centres and schemes will be up by as much as 7%. And um, so I, I rang kind of, you know, their competitors because I wanted to see what they were feeling about the, the kind of upsurge in in the square, or if that was true, and I spoke to Neil Fortune from Eddie Rockets, and he was saying yes, and the the, the restaurant has seen um, kind of more business, and then Pandora, the the jewellers, um, they also had to experience that, and and kind of in anticipation for the square opening, they introduced a three for two because they knew that that would would happen. So not, not every not all stores are going to f- feel the benefit. Um, straight away at least. So River Island and New Look and they you know they would be Penny's competitors. They're popular among teenagers. Um they you know may have seen a, a kind of fall in there. And and I should say I, I didn't speak to them, but as what Jack said, you know, they may have seen kind of a, a slowdown the last few weeks, but eventually because as the you know the footfall continues to rise, they will see kind of benefit from the presence of pennies being in the
1: square So definite uptick for the retailers who are around pennies themselves that's, that's good news for them as well presumably mm-hmm. um, though it's not all good news do the rental prices change because pennies are there are there additional parking charges because of them is there any kind of downside to it?
2: Yeah, well, look, I mean, right. So in the square, they said, look, we were always going to introduce extra car cracking charges. And they, so but when pennies opened, they kind of coincided with it. So, I mean, look, it's not that much in the square. It's a euro for the first three hours or oh, first hour, I think, and then it's more. But yes, so the real estate value in the vicinity will go up. And um, I know pennies uh, from speaking to some agents, you know, they said, you know, pennies will kind of. They will command what price they pay. A lot of times, because the the landlords are just so excited to get them in, they might get rental um, holidays or you know. But they will they will invest in the store. Um, but the shops around them will kind of, you know, they people will want to move into them. Stores will want to move into them. So for example, in the Square, they've moved into Level 1. Mm. Level 1, there's a bit of tumbleweed in Level 1 before they moved in. You know, it wasn't, a lot of the shoppers didn't really go down to Level 1. But now you have you have pennies, you have yeah Superdrug, I think, and Sports Direct. So a lot of stores now will want to go on to Level 1. So chances are, and it, as in all likelihood, you know, the, the Square's landlords will be able to say, look, I think we'll be able to charge more for for the unit.
1: Let's look at their business model for a second. I was very interested uh, in some of the patterns that exist around a Penny's shop, say. Can you just take us through what you found out about that, There are particular times of the day when people go to pennies.
2: Yeah, so um, it was actually interesting. So Jack was saying, even from Jack Martin, this is from the Square, he was saying, you know, that they noticed that after the school run, The the parents will go into, they'll run up and run into pennies, and then now they might kind of stop and then have a tea in in the local cafes there, Um, and then after after school you get the students coming in, and so that's the football times even from the square have changed with the introduction of pennies.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Linda Daly who's business reporter with the Sunday Times about pennies. Linda, you mentioned um, the students there. Um, there are conscientious objectors who have a, a real problem with um, pennies and the fast nature of their fashion. Is this affecting the sales to, to younger generations?
2: Um, I'm not sure it's affecting it now but there it has been a shift in, even from pennies and what they are doing. Mm. So, um, you know they they've been looking. They have this Primark cares, so they're trying to introduce more environmentally friendly practices now. Some people will say that that is whitewashing or greenwashing, as as they call it. You know, and they're not doing enough. So more needs to be encouraged. And you know, better materials need to be used in products. And um, I do think maybe eventually fast fashion could become very unfashionable. And mm-hmm. um, so, but. There are kind of move pennies they've introduced um you know kind of initiatives in their u k stores which will eventually come to Ireland, but it's just whether they do enough, you know whether it's they're seen as enough for for the future uh, buyer the future shopper
1: yeah. So, one one of the other ways they differ from um, other sort of high street offerings is that they don't, in any, in any large scale way, have an online presence. But I see that they're trailing some click and collect in the UK. Can you just talk to me a little bit about why they don't have online offerings and whether or not that click and collect might be happening here in Ireland in the future?
2: Yeah, so... Um uh, our our my in the Sunday Times interviewed uh, the head of pennies there. I think it was just just when COVID happened, and obviously the, the the store had to close and they had no online presence. But what they said, you know, what I think I can't remember exactly who it was that he interviewed, but the response was because the items are so cheap that there is a lot of expense involved in returning the items, mm. so there would be no kind of point of them selling online because you know that's often an underrepresented. The cost you know the people when they sent the items back that is, it costs too much money now what they have done is introduced this click and collector they will be introducing it shortly in the uk um, and and that will have the effect of still bringing people into the penny store but you would be able to shop online and go in and collect your items then so there's no returns as such you know you're not having to put them in the post and pennies aren't having to pick up the tab on that i think it was very interesting actually is pennies don't advertise in traditional media. So they do no above-the-line advertising. So all, you know, this pennies vibe that that people have, it's all kind of uh, generated on social media or just in folklore, I think, so that, that was something that I found was very interesting.
1: Yeah, and maybe just out of habit you're you're popping into the Penny store as just part of your mm-hmm. your weekly shop. Um, the, the Penny's experience has changed a lot in recent years. Uh, you could go in there look, to pick up one or two items and now find yourself in there for an hour because of the indoor in-store experiences. Can you talk to us a little bit about how they've expanded beyond sort of a retail outlet?
2: Yeah, so I think it's about five stores in Ireland. They have... Not only like are they selling you know clothes and and homeware, so they now have nail salons. So in the new Talis store, they have this whole kind of beauty section so you can go in and get your nails done and scrum the ice cream makers are also in, in a couple of their stores as well so you can even buy ice cream and, and walk around while you're doing your shopping so it's kind of to create this destination and um, shopping to keep people in the store I suppose and keep them kind of walking around for longer while maybe eating their ice cream or getting their nails done and and kind of just spending longer on the premises.
1: Well, that certainly will be good news for pennies, keeping people there even longer. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for sharing those insights with us today. That's Linda Daly of The Sunday Times. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Newstalk's Taking Stock. Coming up next, the IMF predicts that 2023 will feel like a recession. What's the difference between being in a recession and feeling like you're in one? I'll ask economist Jim Power after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, the cost of living crisis caused by persistent and broadening inflation pressures and the slowdown in China all led to the IMF's report and its cut in forecast for the global economy for the fourth time this year. I'm joined now by economist Jim Power to discuss the report. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Taking Stock today.
3: You're very welcome, Mandy.
1: Now, the IMF report said that it's difficult to think of a time when uncertainty was so high, Jim. Sometimes I think we like to draw parallels uh, in time just to try and predict when it might end. But I got the sense from the IMF report that the the combination of the problems that that we're facing are now so unprecedented that they they certainly don't want to do that. What were your key takeaways from this latest IMF Economic Outlook?
3: Well, I guess my perspective on the world economy for some time could be described by the two words, intense uncertainty. And um, that certainly came across in the IMF's latest prognostications. Um, I mean, they have revised growth in a downward direction. And the the reasons for that are pretty obvious. Uh, The Ukraine war, uh, the impact it's having on cost of living and the cost of doing business. Um, Inflation has taken off, interest rates are rising. The Chinese economy is under serious pressure due to COVID restrictions since the beginning of the year. And also uh, there is a serious construction bubble um, imploding in China at the moment. So many factors that I think are all easily understood based on what's going on at the moment. Um, They have revised growth downwards for this year and next year. um, And they cite a number of risk factors. Um, They talk about the possibility that the dollar will strengthen further. And that has been a key theme over the last couple of months. We've seen the dollar strengthen appreciably against the the euro and sterling. And when the dollar strengthens for emerging economies, that does make it, um, it makes their borrowing more expensive because much of their borrowing is done in dollars. So it's, it's a serious problem for the emerging world. Uh, they identify interest rate policy as another risk in the sense that interest rates are rising. There's no guarantee it's going to get inflation under control, but we can be certainly guaranteed that it will damage global growth. They're talking about the potential for further energy and food price shocks. And they're basically saying that all of the risks to growth at the moment are on the downside. Uh, but I think more importantly, they're saying that um, it's just intensely uncertain at the moment because you know, in the world of economic forecasting, we're normally dealing with factors that we can understand. But when we're dealing with the Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what he might do next, it is just clouded in intense uncertainty.
1: Mm, certainly a very gloomy picture there. Can I just ask you your opinion on the interest rates uh, side of things there um, much has been made in that IMF report of the uncoordinated nature of the central bank's attempts to increase those inter- interest rates to try and curb inflation. Why is that such a concern? Can you talk us through that?
3: Well, I mean, obviously rising interest rates, you know, damage economic growth in the countries where rates are increased. And that's the reason why interest rates are rising, is to try and slow growth to get inflation back under control. But the pace of tightening has been pretty erratic. Um, U.S. started moving in March and has taken rates from zero to three and a quarter at the moment. The European Central Bank, on the other hand, didn't start until July and has now it increased rates in July and September by a combined one and a quarter percent. The Bank of England has been moving since last December. Uh, the Bank of Japan has done nothing. So that there's there's lots of different stuff. And okay, obviously, central banks are trying to reflect what's happening within their own jurisdiction, and that's why um, you know there was a lot more strong demand in the States than in Europe, and hence the Federal Reserve move more quickly, whereas the European Central Bank view was that Um, at least earlier in the year, and Philip Lane, the ECB chief economist, said numerous times that this inflation spike was transitory, that there would be no need to increase interest rates aggressively, and they changed that stance in July. Um, But one of the, I guess, consequences of different interest rate tightening is the fact that it has serious repercussions, for example, for um, currencies. and As I said, we've seen the dollar strengthen appreciably against the euro, the yen um, and sterling in recent times. Uh, we see in the UK, the Bank of England is tightening interest rates, is trying to get inflation back under control. And at the same time, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and Liz Trust, the Prime Minister, are pursuing a very um, irresponsible fiscal policy in terms of tax cuts and significant spending increases. So there's not a lot of coordination going on at the moment, and that creates financial market instability. And that really is what would concern the International Monetary Fund in the current environment. Back in March 2020, when COVID hit, Governments immediately started spending money, they started cutting taxes, and at the same time, central banks cut interest rates and engaged in quantitative easing to reduce the cost of borrowing for governments to fund the extra borrowing they were doing it was a very coordinated response and the financial and economic impact um you know was not volatile whereas this time around different jurisdictions are doing very different things and it's that instability uncertainty that is resulting in significant volatility particularly in financial markets so um i i would summarize the overall situation at the moment as the perfect storm, Mm. it would appear that anything that can go wrong is going wrong at the moment. And unfortunately, we do lack visibility about the future because we are dealing with very, very unpredictable political actors in the global sphere at the moment.
1: Yeah, and speaking of unpredictability, uh, and we can't have a conversation about the global economy without talking about what's happening over in the UK, more interventions this week in relation to the sovereign gint, guilt bonds by the UK. Um, uh, is this part of last week's 50, six, 65 billion rescue package or is this an add-on to that or is it something more?
3: Well, uh, it's an add-on. Um, I, I, well, sorry, we're not clear about how much that's 65 billion, but I think it's becoming clear they are going to have to spend more than mm. that. OK, and um, I I mean, the, the UK at the moment is just a total basque case in economic and political terms. And I would date all of this back to um, June 23rd, 2016, when the UK voted to leave the European Union. Since then... The whole UK political and policy making environment has been utterly bizarre. And you know, politicians in in power have certainly lost connection with economic realities. Um it has it, been mad stuff, but this the 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 appointment of, of Liz Truss as Prime Minister, the mini budget that quasi quartang um introduced uh, three weeks ago at this stage. uh, That's just the latest iteration of what has been an absolutely bizarre political and economic policy-making environment in the UK since the middle of 2016. And unfortunately, you know, the UK is a G7 country and what happens in the UK does have reverberations around the rest of the world. I mean, when government bond yields in the UK um, spiked in the last few days, that has reflected in higher government bond yields in other countries, including in the United States. So, unfortunately, you can't look at the mess in the UK at the moment in isolation. Mm. Um, the whole global system is interrelated. And that's why um, bodies like the International Monetary Funds, the US Treasury, Um, Janet Yellen, who's Secretary of the US Treasury, they are all extremely concerned about what's going on in the UK at the moment. And it's because of that global contagion effect. And back in 2008, when the global financial crisis erupted, we saw very quickly just how contagion can spread through financial markets, because the system is really as good or as bad as the weakest link. And at the moment, the UK is very much the weakest link, and it's creating a lot of global instability.
1: Yeah, but in fairness too, you, you did predict, Jim, that Liz Truss would be even worse than Boris Johnson. So unfortunately, you you got that one right. (laughs) Got to
3: get something right, Mandy.
1: It is. (laughs) If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to economist Jim Power about the latest IMF global economic forecast. Uh, Jim, as you mentioned earlier, the reality is that um, there are no predictions really about when the war on Ukraine might end or where the geopolitical consequences of that war might end in terms of energy. Uh, gas prices in Europe have increased more than fourfold since 2021. Did the IMF say anything about the possibility of finding any energy price stability?
3: No, um, and it, it is one of the risk factors that they certainly alluding to uh, the possibility that um, number one, energy supply um, could deteriorate further and secondly that you could see significant price price spikes from here. So energy is very much in there as one of the big global uncertainties at the moment and I think Europe is particularly vulnerable given the dependence on imported energy from Russia and um, I, I think if there's any lesson we should learn from this and that is We really, really do need as quickly as possible to move away from energy dependence on geopolitically um, volatile and uncertain countries. And if we ever needed a better argument to push the whole renewable and alternative energy agenda, um, what has happened in the last eight months certainly presents that. I think we've got to move away from this nimbyism and this opposition to every piece of renewable energy that is proposed offshore and onshore um, here in Ireland and indeed uh, across Europe. Um, to me there are two crises days in Ireland that we're facing, we're, sorry we're not facing, we're in the middle. One is the housing market, the second is energy. Both of those issues should be top of the policy making agenda at the moment. And we've given a lot of lip service to um, renewable energy targets, etc. But the whole policy background does not always back up the very ambitious targets we put in place. So I think we really do, in Europe generally, Mm. um, and in Ireland in particular, we do need to get serious about um, addressing the energy crisis. Of course, uh, you know, eight months ago, the the energy imperative was to uh, try and meet our climate change targets. But now that has been totally exacerbated by uh, the energy shock we've seen since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I I think we we really do need to use this energy crisis as the wake-up call to address Um, security of energy supply into the future because uh, energy security basically means having access to a reliable source of energy at affordable costs Mm. and we have neither of those two things at the moment and unfortunately as the IMF has said it could get worse who knows
1: Just step back a second, Jim, from the policy areas in the IMF report as they pertain to Ireland. What's the outlook from a macroeconomic situation for Ireland in terms of our relationship with the global economy? Is there any takeaways from this that we should be looking out for?
3: Well, Well, you know, I mean, Ireland is the ultimate example of a small open economy. Uh, where foreign direct investment and international trade are an incredibly important part of our economic model. So if the global economy is in trouble it obviously impacts on Ireland and it impacts in a number of ways. You know one is that interest rates are rising um, and I would say the European Central Bank is probably going to double rates between here and the end of the first quarter of next year from one and a quarter at the moment to probably two and a half. Who knows but that'll be my best guesstimate at the moment. Um, If the global economy is slowing. It obviously has an impact on Ireland's export performance. And also, which I think is, will be really interesting to watch, and that is the performance of the tech companies in the United States, because the performance of those tech companies in recent years, in terms of employment creation, in terms of investment here in Ireland, and also in terms of generating Corporate tax revenues. If we were to start to see a turnaround in the performance of those companies, well, then you could very quickly see uh, that starting to impact on the multinational sector in this country. I'm not saying this will, but it is one we need to watch. Um, so, those are the obvious threats we face from the global environment. But the good news is that to date, Ireland has proved relatively immune. Tax revenues are still growing very strongly. Um, The export performance continues to be very strong. We have 2.55 million people in employment at the middle of the year. We have an unemployment rate of 4.3%, which is effectively full employment. So a a lot of the the real economic indicators in Ireland are still holding up very well, but there are warning signs. Consumer confidence has fallen to the lows seen in March 20 and December 2008. March 20 was when the Covid hit December two thousand and eight was at the beginning of the great financial cri- the global financial crisis. So consumers are very nervous about the future, and we're all consumers. You know, we hear the news flow, we see what's happening, cost of living, rising interest rates, and intense uncertainty, and that is now starting to. Um, translate into a much more cautious consumer spending environment. So certain businesses that are in the discretionary area of spending, um, I think, are starting to feel some pressure. We're also starting to see more cautious business investment behaviour. And if a business was not more cautious in the current environment, um, I'd be asking serious questions about that that business, you know, in an environment of intense uncertainty, I think as consumers and as business people, we need to be a little bit careful. Um, And as you know, Mandy, there's always this kind of debate about talking ourselves into a recession, and I'm always conscious of that. But we also need to be realistic about what's happening out there. It's a very difficult balance to It is to to reach in in the current environment. But but I I think um, being realistic about the threats, the risks, and acting appropriately as consumers or as businesses I think is the name of the game at the moment and should be.
1: Yeah, I thought the the sentiment from the IMF report saying that we will feel like we're in a recession in 2023 was a very interesting one stopping short of actually predicting a recession would happen but very much reflecting that those consumer sentiment uh, sentiments have, have changed and are very negative at the moment. Uh, Jim, I had some mm. hope to speak to you about the markets and the emerging economies but sadly time has got the better of us today that's economist Jim Power and Jim and his colleague Chris Johns have an excellent podcast themselves called On the Other Hand I'd very much recommend it to anyone who's interested in our economy or a wider global view but for today Jim thank you very much for, for joining us
3: You're most welcome Mandy thank you
1: This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock coming up Shopping used to be something that happened just a few times a year now we're at it all the time how can we make it more sustainable find out after the break You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, clothes shopping used to be an occasional event. It's something that happened to us a few times a year, maybe when the seasons changed or when we outgrew what we had. But about 20 years ago, something changed. Clothes became cheaper, trend cycles sped up significantly and shopping became a kind of hobby. But what pays the biggest price for the phenomenon known as fast fashion is our environment and exploited workers. As we can't steer clear of fast fashion, we can still make it more sustainable and make better choices. So what should be done to make the industry better and to help us make those better choices? We're joined now by Maeve Galvin, who's Global Campaigns and Policy Director at Fashion Revolution, and she manages the Good Clothes Fair Play campaign. Maeve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Maeve, we start off with that, that issue I mentioned first there, are shopping habits. How have things changed uh, in the course of the last two decades?
0: Yeah, and you're right to kind of pinpoint it in the last two or three decades, but certainly the rise of cheap clothing has definitely affected how we consume clothing and how we dispose of clothing. And, you know, the, the, the advocates, you know, our grandparents obviously, wore clothes in a very different way than we do they repaired things they bought for for long-term wearing um and you know with the kind of the, 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 the affordability of clothing and the fact that just things are just cheaper and and cheaper in quality as well um we're now buying for less wares and we're buying in in vast quantities and obviously um it's a consumer's market it's very very cheap to purchase high volumes of clothes and, and and wear them once and dispose of them. Um, and the rise of social media has obviously contributed to that, people not wanting to be photographed in the same thing twice, etc. But obviously all of this has a huge impact on people and on the planet and it's ultimately not sustainable. Um, and the data, of course, is that in Ireland we're particularly um you know, we're, we're particularly hungry for clothes and we do consume per capita in very high numbers.
1: That's that's very interesting. So we we are particularly bad at it. And and, and Maeve, why is that like, why has it become ingrained as part of our social sort of uh, fabric, if you forgive the pun, that we now regard shopping as a kind of a social activity, not just buying for necessity?
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, it's so affordable to do that, right? And the fact is that clothing prices haven't risen in line with other prices. So if you look at, you know, a slice pan in nineteen ninety versus a slice a, a, a pair of jeans, and a pair of jeans is nearly cheaper today than it was in nineteen ninety. Um. So definitely, the price point really helps. Um. But yeah, obviously, there's societal and psychological components to it as well. Um, And I suppose people don't really associate, you know, the, you know, clothing production and the conversations about places like Bangladesh. Maybe they're not thinking about that when they're, you know, when they're thinking, I I need a new outfit for a particular event or whatever. But obviously, I think the, the conversations around sustainability in the past number of years have helped somewhat and people are a little bit aware that you know they do need to cut back but institutionalizing that and making that part of people's everyday habits and isn't easy especially when you know there's an awful lot of marketing directed towards us and there's an awful lot of pressure um to to be wearing new
1: constantly Mm. um is it a generational thing and i ask you that because you know it it is obvious that the younger generation are sort of more climate aware than we were maybe more conscious of the contribution that they're making in a negative way to emissions so um it's a, it's kind of an interesting sort of um contradiction for me that it's the same generation who's if you like actually propelling this type of cheap uh, purchasing, not repairing clothes, as you say, um, and that they're the ones who are m- maybe more climate aware than our generation would be?
0: Not necessarily. It's kind of, there's mixed data on this, to be honest, in terms of the age profile of folks that are buying in high quantities. But ultimately, you know, I think the conversation that we at Fashion Revolution want to drive is getting away from the the consumption conversation and actually the fact is this is a really unregulated industry and you know individual consumers would nearly need you know mas in in sustainability to kind of determine which product is better for the environment etc but actually what we need is a better regulated industry overall so that the consumer at the end point isn't contributing to as much you know negative and um, impacts as, as they currently are and um, for example we we you know we've all seen images there are images of countries like places like Ghana and Chile where there's the second hand clothing market is causing huge environmental damage um and it's a real problem in being in countries like that being sent clothes from the west however um there's not really regulation on that um so people continue to kind of t- to buy and think oh but you know it'll get a second life and often it doesn't so that responsibility um, needs to change and a, and a big part of that can be just regulating an industry that isn't currently unregulated.
1: So talk to me a little bit about Fashion Revolution itself. What is it? What are you hoping to achieve?
0: Sure. So Fashion Revolution is the world's largest fashion sustainability movement. Um, we're in multiple countries, more than 80 worldwide um, and we've been in existence for nearly 10 years Um and we've been pushing the industry to be more transparent to, and, and to essentially um, to, to be better on people and also on profits. Um, so we, we do this on a few different levels, um, pushing, pushing big influential companies, creating advocacy and raising awareness among citizens, as well as advocating for policy change and calling on things like the EU to, to regulate the fashion industry.
1: And what are you hoping uh, to, to achieve at EU level?
0: So the, um, we currently have a campaign called Good Clothes Fair Pay, which is calling for all companies, all, all brands that do business with the EU, and the EU is the world's largest consumer market, um, to, have to, do, to have to regulate themselves on living wages in the fashion supply chain. And living wages is a major issue. There's millions of workers worldwide, primarily women of colour, who are paid minimum wages but minimum wages often fall dramatically short of a living wage and a living wage really is the basics of what's needed to live a decent life and to save a small bit of money for context the minimum wage in ireland is about 10.50 an hour a living wage in ireland is about 12 euro and um, but in places that we're that we're looking at and where garment workers are earning the minimum wage, there's a gap of on average 45% between the the wage they earn versus a living wage. So, you know, this is connected to that cheap price point that we talked about earlier. For a really long time, the industry has driven down prices and driven down labour costs so that they're artificially low and the people who've suffered are workers and the industry is not making these changes on its own. So what we're calling for is the EU to actually regulate the brands that do business and import into the EU um, so that they have to pay greater attention to this. Um, and ideally, the ramifications would dramatically change lives for millions of workers. And to do this, we need to get a million EU citizens behind us, which is quite a feat. But to be to be kind of on the agenda of policymakers in a serious way, um, we need that. So we're... We're calling for folks who are keen to go to our website, goodclothesfairpay.eu and add their signatures and um, lend support to this.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to Maeve Galvin, who's Global Campaigns and Policy Director at fashion revolution and we're talking about sustainable choices in the fashion industry it's interesting that you've picked the starting point for your regulatory um campaign if you like uh, as wages what are the other considerations that regulations should regulators should be looking at when it comes to the fashion industry
0: there's huge i mean for us are one of our big issues is transparency which we really see not to be distinguished with sustainability we see transparency as an entry point to sustainability and for, for example we talked earlier about volumes of clothing and consumption of clothing whereas fashion revolution we create we collect data every year on how transparent the industry actually is at a high level and basically what we found this year was 85 percent of the world's biggest fashion brands don't disclose how much production they're actually making every year. So we don't even know how many clothes are being produced by these big brands and you so if you have sustainability commitments obviously part of it has to be how much are you producing and how much many resources you're actually using. So this we think is a really clear example of an area where you know if this was regulated the companies had to report this information then we could begin to hold them accountable for this and we could begin to sort of say you have sustainability commitments and you've signed up to the Paris agreements, but you know, here's the volume that you're producing, which doesn't align with that. Whereas right now that's a whole opaque space. Mm. Um, so really, yeah, greater transparency is something we're absolutely calling for. And there's a few proposals on the table around that. And um, That would be one example of several um, and hopefully, you know, that, that could be an initial starting point for a lot of other things that we need to change in the industry. But the reality is, yeah, the will within the industry, you know, you get pockets of good brands, etc. But it's very, very easy to be a bad brand. It's actually much tougher to be a good brand.
1: Yeah. And it's very hard to differentiate between one and the other. You've mentioned a couple of times transparency and, you know, authenticity the providence uh, of, of, a, of a garment or an article is, is very important and very hard to see sometimes. So do you think that a lot of the brands who have sustainable labels, do you think that there's um, a lot of greenwashing going on in the industries? Yeah, there's a huge conversation happening
0: on greenwashing right now and it's really, really interesting. We've been calling out greenwashing and also info dumping mm. um, in our reporting for years. And you are starting to see regulators in various jurisdictions call out individual brands or tighten their regulation on that. And partially, again, it's been a bit of a wild west of language and what you can say. So, you know, if you can, you know, you, for example, the food industry can't just say something's organic, um, but the fashion industry can say something is bio or can say something is sustainable. Um, so it's genuinely really, really tough if you are a consumer, trying to do the right thing. Um, So we do need to tighten this. And we are seeing um, policymakers really step up and identify that this is an area um, that needs to change. So we're kind of encouraged by the moves in places like Norway and the UK um, and the environment at the moment. Yeah, every every week or two, we're hearing different stories come out about this. So we are hopeful that that situation will currently change and that consumers will just have better guidance to go with.
1: And if they do have better guidance and there's more transparency, does it mean that effectively we're we're going to have to just accept that we actually pay a lot more for our clothes than we're paying for now?
0: Well, I suppose in all of that would need to be, you know, it's very hard to anticipate every single circumstance, but with living wages specifically, there's really good data from Oxfam that says that if workers were paid a living wage, it would change the price of a garment by less than one percent. So the labour costs in your average t-shirt right now are less than three percent. So you know this isn't—we're not actually asking for something dramatic when it comes to fair, fair and just payment of workers because really, the industry's profitability on on the back of of a cheap product has been so significant for so long so actually that's the piece that we're asking to change not necessarily you know not not affecting the consumer pocket but it, but affecting the brand profitability and you know sharing the the pie more equitably so that you know the people who do make our clothes can can basically live decent lives if anyone listening has ever tried to make a t-shirt or operate a sewing machine they'll know it's skilled labour and mm. it deserves to be valued as such.
1: Absolutely and and we've spent a lot of time today talking about the industry but we also have a role to play as consumers so Maeve just finally can you just leave us with some top tips about what we can do to be, be more sustainable I- in our shopping?
0: Sure I mean the first thing I would always say is the most sustainable garment is the one that's already in your wardrobe. So just, you know, really questioning, do you need something new or can you be creative? Can you rent? Can you borrow? Um, And the other thing is just, you know, we need to change our mentality about our clothes and think about having a long-term relationship with our clothes. And actually, I I really do encourage those other possessions that we have, like books, where we almost have an emotional connection to them. And we've lost that with clothing. And I think... Bringing that back and really loving and repairing, and um, the items that we have, and um, could really, could really shift that, um, and you know just actually, and then just building good habits, learning how to how to care for your clothing, learning how to wash properly, etc. All of those things just need to be baked back in, and some of them, um, you know, we've, we we have just lost over time, um, and and they aren't really rocket science.
1: No, I really think you've made a very valuable point there. A lot of this buying is about habit Uh, and so if we can, you know, get back into those good habits of creating good relationships with our clothing and keeping them for longer as we we did many years ago. I think, you know, that that is something that we as individuals have to accept and respect is is our own personal responsibility. And Maeve, thank you for your insights today. It's been very informative and I hope helpful. That was Maeve Galvin, who's Global Campaigns and Policy Director at Fashion Revolution. Maeve, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we are always available on a Friday morning on the News Talk app. If you want to get in touch, you can email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. And just very quickly, I want to tell you about what we'll be doing next week. We're going to be broadcasting from the IBEC HR Leadership Summit at Crow Park. It's sponsored by Irish Life Health. And I'll be speaking to some of their HR leaders about the central role HR plays in strategically driving business forward. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer, John Fardy with Hugo de Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.